Okay, well, open your Bibles to the book of Romans this morning, as we are in official springboard territory. For two weeks, we've been taking a break from our normal course, which is going through the Gospel of Matthew, verse by verse, in order to follow this rabbit trail. This rabbit trail has to do with the plan of God for the people of God, especially as it relates to Jews and Gentiles. Just going through Matthew's Gospel, we've seen hints at God's big overall plan of redemption, and that includes this seismic shift in the people of God in the Old Covenant era. God's people was Israel. But here in the New, God's people is overwhelmingly Gentile. So much changes when you turn the page from the Old Testament to the New. It all has to do with the, the coming of the Christ and its significance. That's, that in itself is a huge issue. But we wanted to better understand the implications of Christ's coming for the people of God. So a couple of weeks ago, we took a step back and examined the big picture of Matthew's gospel. Because it's actually one of Matthew's objectives to explain what the coming of the Christ meant for the people of God. So we surveyed the whole book in one sermon. And we saw three themes clearly emerge. The first was that of Jewish priority. That both the Messiah himself and the offer of the gospel went to Israel first. But then there's a second theme of Jewish rejection, that they rejected the gospel. They even crucified their Messiah. It's a big turn of events, but in the wisdom of God's plan, this foreseen rejection of Israel led to the third theme, that of Gentile acceptance. As Israel slammed the door shut on the stream of God's mercy, it diverted to the nations It was always God's plan for his gospel to go out to all the nations. But who would have thought it would have come about through the rejection of Israel? Well, last week we took this study one step further. We did the same thing with the book of Acts. Just one sermon surveying the entire book. We did that because Luke writes the very similar purpose, but he writes about after Christ has come, the beginning of the church. Everything that was foreseen in Matthew concerning the the Jew-Gentile shift in the people of God, it gets played out in the book of Acts. We found the exact same three themes as the church began. You have a remnant of Jews believing, but by and large, the nation has rejected an unbelief, and the floodgates have opened to the Gentiles. And we have so much ground to cover this morning, I can't afford much more of a recap than that. You'll just have to get the past two sermons if you missed them. But we're back this morning to finish exploring this rabbit trail, and then we'll get back to Matthew. But this morning takes us to the book of Romans. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they explain to us God's plans for his people. Now that Christ has come, they they tell us about those plans. The book of Acts shows us those plans in action. But then it's the epistles that really explain in detail the plans and what they mean And as it pertains to the role of Jews and Gentiles in that plan, no better explanation is found than in the book of Romans. If I can boil it down for the sake of time, our objective this morning is just to spend one more message exploring what the Bible says about God's redemptive plans, especially as it relates to Jews and Gentiles. You'll see at the end how actually surprisingly practical this can be. If you're new this morning, if you're just here visiting on the 4th, you probably get more than you bargained for this morning. But if you love exploring the scriptures, I think you'll still be edified. But we have to turn to Romans. 
Can you think of a more authoritative voice on these issues than the Apostle Paul? Paul himself was raised as a Jew, a Pharisee at that, meticulously trained in the law. Like the other Jews, at first he was completely hardened against Christ, but the Lord humbled him and drew him to himself, converted him, made him his servant, chiefly to the Gentiles, his witness. And Paul was on the cutting edge of God's plans for the nations. There's no one more qualified to speak on the role of Jews and Gentiles in God's plans than Paul. And in Romans, he does so most clearly. Paul writes Romans from Corinth on the tail end of his third missionary journey. He's on the way to Jerusalem, after which he hopes to finally visit Rome and see the church there. Little did he know at the time he would only make it to Rome in chains as a prisoner. You know, Paul did not plant the church in Rome. He had never been there. It started somewhere else or somehow else, not by his efforts. And he writes this letter partly to just build up the faith of this young church. But since he was not involved in starting this church, he's especially concerned to make sure that they know and are growing in the true gospel. And so in Romans, Paul lays out the groundwork for salvation and sanctification in great detail. It's no wonder why Romans stands first among all the epistles. In Romans 1 through 8, first eight chapters, they're all about just salvation and sanctification. It captures just the heart of the gospel. But unlike the past two weeks, today, this morning, we're not going to be surveying the whole book of Romans. Our objective is to better understand God's redemptive plans for Jews and Gentiles, people of God. And although much of what Paul says in Romans 1 through 8 is relevant, we're barely going to make it through Romans 9 through 11. It's in those three chapters where Paul tackles head-on God's plans for Israel and the church. This is the clearest teaching in the whole Bible on these matters, and it will be the perfect capstone to everything we've studied so far. Now, I'll let you know, like, why does Paul even deal with these issues in the letter to the Romans? A little bit of historical background might help you. Did you know that in AD 49, all of the Jews were expelled from Rome by a decree of Emperor Claudius? That included Jewish Christians. So overnight, the church in Rome went from being predominantly Jewish to 100% Gentile, just like that. After Claudius' death in AD 54, Jews started trickling back into the city, but, but things were different. The Jews in the church were marginalized. Paul writes Romans a few years later, AD 56, 57, and he understands these two groups are at odds. They always have been. Not only are Jews and Gentiles used to despising one another, but the unique situation in Rome has really amplified that tension. But Paul knows, like, like these, these people, they're called to be one in Christ. Only the gospel can bring about that type of unity. So I'm thinking Jews and Arabs today, one. It's the same thing. And only the gospel can do that. This explains, though, why so much of Romans, it's actually not just about explaining the gospel, but it all the way through, it relates how the gospel affects Jews and Gentiles and unites them. It's the great equalizer. You get this right away from the theme verse or the thesis verse, Romans 1.16. We've quoted this many times in the past two weeks, where Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. 
You ever wonder, like, why does Paul say that? Why not just say, hey, the gospel, it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, period. Move on. Why does he add this little phrase, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek? Well, he's expressing the same Jewish priority we've been studying for weeks. Romans is about the gospel, but it contains this nuance of how the gospel relates to these people groups, Jews and Gentiles, the nations. There is still a Jewish priority in the offer of the gospel, but one of his main arguments is how the gospel unites Jew and Gentile. We're all justified by grace, through faith, apart from the works. We do become one in Christ. Jew and Gentile are on equal footing as they enter this one new man, the church. Later in Romans 9 through 11, Paul will explain this in further detail and then relate what this means for the nation of Israel going forward. Now, like I alluded to, Romans 9 through 11 is so dense with teaching on this issue, it's just going to take all of our time. I, I can't even really give you a satisfying summary of Romans 1 through 8. Just suffice it to say, in the first eight chapters, Paul convicts all people of being sinners. All are unrighteous. Jew, Gentile, that's our problem. We're unrighteous before a holy God. We've all sinned. But the good news, the heart of it, is that all sinners, everyone, can be justified, made right with God. How? By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from the works of the law. Now, that's the good news of justification. In the remaining chapters, 5 through 8, Paul fleshes out the results, the implications, the evidences of justification by faith. It's a lot in there. Now, the end of this letter, Romans 12 through 16, that's just all application, just command after command. Here's how to live out all this truth. Here's how to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. It's all application. That leaves in the middle, Romans 9 through 11, where Paul just goes off talking about national Israel. And for this reason, some think these chapters are out of place. They call Romans 9 through 11 like a parenthesis. It's, it's, it's like Paul is going down his own arbitrary rabbit trail just talking about things about Israel. It seems unrelated to the flow of this letter. That is not the case. I want to first show you how these chapters are woven into the, the flow, the thought of Romans. You can go to the end of Romans 8. Romans 8 is building up the assurance of our salvation. And a lot of it is based on the fact of God's election. We learn in verses 29 and 30, we have been foreknown and predestined and called. Verse 33 says we are God's elect. Verse 39, God has set his love on us. Because of God's choice, nothing can interrupt his promises to us. We've been justified and we will be glorified by God's promise. Nothing can stop that. God's word cannot fail. So we're assured of our salvation, right? Also, God's love cannot fail. We're doubly assured. He says in Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Not sin, not Satan, not death. It's very encouraging, Romans 8. It's a highlight. But you just have to stop for a second, though, and put yourself in the mind of a Jewish Christian back then, receiving this letter, and reading chapter 8, you, you might think, we've we got a problem here. Because it sure seems like God's promises to Israel failed. It sure seems like Israel has been separated from the love of God. I mean, didn't God 
elect Israel corporately as a holy nation before him? Didn't he foreknow and predestine and call them to be his people? Didn't God set his unconditional love on them? Didn't he make everlasting promises to them as a nation? Yes, he did. But many of these eternal promises remain unfulfilled. And then here now the nation is cut off in unbelief. They've rejected the Messiah. And so we're left wondering, like, has the word of God failed? Has the love of God failed? How can I believe the promises God makes to me? How do I know he won't someday revoke my elect status? You know, throughout the book of Romans, Paul has been anticipating questions and objections to his teaching, because he's got some heavy stuff in here. And then he answers them in advance all the way throughout. That's what he's doing here. He knows that the plan of God for Israel so far, that might cast some doubt on God's character, word, and promises. But in the next three chapters, he's going to show that God's choice, promises, and love have not failed. That Israel's present rejection, it's all true, but it's just not the end of the story. And we want to know about the end of the story, so let's get into it. Our goal now is just to get through Romans 9 through 11 to finish this survey on God's plans for his people now that the Christ has come. So we're in Romans 9. Paul begins chapter 9 expressing his deep sorrow over fellow Jews. He says, my kinsmen according to the flesh, but they're unbelieving. He says in verse 4, he says, they are Israelites to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises. Whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. That's obvious. He's talking about unbelieving ethnic Israel here. Paul's kinsmen according to the flesh. But do you see how he describes Israel in verse 4? This is all in the present tense. These are not just past tense realities, but presently, he says, to them belongs adoption, the covenants, the promises. If Paul ever wanted to say that the covenants and promises of God to Israel were just spiritually transferred to the church, this is his chance. But no, he, he upholds Israel's elect status. And clearly, Paul did not think of the church as negating or spiritually assuming all the promises of God to this nation. But this tension must be explained. What does Israel's present rejection mean for their status as God's people? How can Israel still be viewed as possessing God's covenants and promises, but right now they're separated from Christ? Like that, that doesn't make sense. Well, we have three chapters that are going to explain that. Now, first off, Paul's going to argue that God is still fulfilling his promises to Israel overall through the remnant within Israel, the believing remnant. There is a true Israel, and that refers to Jews who believe. God's promises were, in fact, always intended for those who believe. Look at verse 6. Look what he's defending. Verse 6, it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Nor are they all children, because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. Now, I should mention that throughout church history, some have subscribed to something called replacement theology or supersessionism, which teaches that the church has replaced Israel. The church is 
the new or the true Israel. All the promises God made to Israel are being fulfilled spiritually in the church. As for Israel, God God is done with Israel forever. They've been cut off forever. There is no future plans for the restoration. The regathering as a nation in this past 50 years, a coincidence. means nothing. Now, some call this, label this a fulfillment theology. It's all to the same effect, though. They teach the same thing. Romans 9, 6 is one of their favorite verses used to support this notion. They are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. And so they might say, look, right there. See, it says there are Israelites, people called Israelites, even though they haven't been descended from Israel. They're not the physical descendants of Israel. That's us. That's Gentiles. We, the church, we're now the true new Israel. But is that what this verse is saying? You see for yourself. By way of background, this term Israel is used 73 times in the New Testament. Every single time it refers to ethnic national Israel. It's never spiritualized and used of the church. The church, of course, bears similarity to Israel as the people of God, but similarity does not prove identity. The New Testament never blurs the lines as if the church is now Israel, taken over. That's a theology that gets imposed on the text. Just think of the book of Acts from last week. The term Israel, speaking of the nation, is used 22 times. The church is referenced by name 19 times, and every single time they are kept distinct. If a change was taking place where the church is the new true Israel, you'd expect to see something of it in the book of Acts. There's none of it. Is Romans 9, 6 some exception, though? They are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. And so some will argue that Paul is is taking the circle of Israel and he's widening it to include Gentiles. But where do you get Gentiles from this text or the context? Gentile believers are found nowhere in this context. They don't show up till verse 24. And even then, Paul argues so far, he's only been talking about Jews. No, in context, Paul is wrestling with this distinction within Israel between Jews who believe in Jesus, like himself, And, verse 3, his kinsmen according to the flesh who don't believe. So, look, Paul here, he's not widening the lines of true Israel to include Gentile believers. And rather, it's pretty clear, he's narrowing the lines of true Israel to exclude unbelieving Jews. It's that simple. Just take the circle of ethnic Israel, now draw a smaller circle inside. True Israel are those ethnic Jews who have received the Christ. They are now the true Israel. There's a remnant of Israel who has believed. And his point is, those Jews are experiencing the blessings of God's promise, proving the word of God has not failed. He's not abandoned every Jew. You know, this actually sounds exactly like what the Old Testament prophets foresaw. They they foresaw that Israel was and will be unbelieving, but a remnant will be saved. And what do you know? Paul makes the exact same connection down in verse 27. And here it's, it's specific to Israel. Gentiles are excluded from this statement. But he says in verse 27 that Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. It is the remnant that will be saved. So here's the first point. God's promises, they're always received by faith. We know that always. God made many promises to national Israel, which they're not receiving because they're not believing. But God is still making good on this promise to bless through the remnant. 
you just, you always just let the New Testament define our terms. According to the New Testament, Israel just means Israel. It's always used in reference to the nation of Israel. I expect nothing different here. And what is the church? The church is not even a nation or a national entity. The church is the body of Christ. It is the one people of God, consisting of all the redeemed, of all the nations, together in one body. Israel is one of those nations. And they are, in fact, the first nation in, remember, we learned about Jewish priority. That's God's prerogative. But only a small remnant believed, and it is that remnant, we would call, true Israel. So it is wrong to say that the church is true Israel, but it is right to say that true Israel right now is found in the church. Like, where do you find believing Jews right now? By definition, they're in the church. They have embraced Christ. Just ask all the apostles who were all Jews. They're in the church. All right, well, let's move on. Verses 7 through 13. Paul goes on to illustrate this point by two examples of God choosing some and then rejecting others among the descendants of Abraham. But God chose Isaac, not Ishmael. God chose Jacob, not Esau. This actually further proves the point that when he said they're not all Israel who are descended from Israel, he's making a division within the physical descendants. He's not adding to the nation of Israel. Now, this whole idea from here, this whole idea of God choosing some and passing over others, at this point, it does lead Paul to go on a short detour of God's sovereignty in salvation. It's what Romans 9 is known for, the second half. There are some huge important truths here on predestination. But it takes us away from Israel church issues. It's not our concern right now, so we'll, we'll pass over it. At the end of the chapter, verses 30 through 33, though, Paul ends, he comes back to his subject on Israel with a customary rhetorical question, verse 30, essentially saying, look, a great turn of events has taken place where Israel has stumbled, and all these Gentiles are being saved. Like, how is this turn of events to be explained? And then what does it mean for the nation of Israel and their future? Well, onward we go into chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 1. He says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. And Paul continues to express his desire for national Israel's salvation. Why is Israel unsaved? Verse 3, he says, they've got a zeal for the Lord, but not in accordance with knowledge. They're still trying to establish their own righteousness before God by keeping the law. They've not understood, verse 4, Christ's righteousness, which is gained by faith. How can they be saved? Well, guess what? It's the same way anybody can be saved now. Verse 9 gives us that classic definition, the classic answer, Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And verse 12, whereas before, he argued in chapter 3, Jew and Gentile were both shut up under sin and condemned. Now, Jew and Gentile can be equally saved by faith. Verse 12, he says, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. And that's more good news. 
Now, before moving on, the rest of the chapter, Paul explains, now, Israel has no excuse for their unbelief. They heard the gospel, they, they received the Christ, but they rejected him. He says in the end, verse 21, they're a disobedient and obstinate people, just like they always have been throughout the Old Testament. Again, though, Paul quotes the Old Testament to show, like, this is actually nothing new. This was foretold. I mean, do you really think, like, Israel's unbelief caught God off guard, so he switches to some plan B? No. You realize that even back in the Exodus, when God elected this nation and gave them eternal, unconditional promises, he knew one day they're going to reject and crucify the Messiah. But he still made all those promises. We've actually learned that that was always part of his plan, Israel's rejection, the means by which the gospel would be diverted and exposed to all the nations is part of the wonder of his plan. But again, it's just, it's just not the end of the plan. Chapter 11 is going to finally get to the end of the plan. Chapter 11, verse 1, he says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. It's obvious he's still talking about unbelieving Israel, chapter 10, verse 21. They're right there in the context. Has God rejected them? He uses the strongest Greek negative possible, which we translate, may it never be. This verse is a problem for supersessionists because they, they teach God has given Israel a final bill of divorce. There's no future. He essentially has rejected his people. But like they say it's okay. God's word hasn't failed because the church is Israel, and all those promises are being fulfilled spiritually in the church. But do you think that's what Paul is going to argue for in this chapter to defend God's people have not been rejected? No, not even a little. He means literally God has not rejected national Israel. And in this chapter, he's going to argue for that in two ways. It's pretty simple. Verses 1 through 10, he's going to show Israel's rejection is not total. And then verses 11 through 32, Israel's rejection is not final. Now, verses 1 through 10, he's just kind of revisiting what he said in chapter 9, this remnant argument. He affirms again that God is still showing his concern for Israel through preserving a remnant of true believers. Paul says in verse 1, like, he's part of the remnant. He believes. He adds in verse 5, he quotes the passage about Elijah and the remnant, those who did not bow the knee to Baal, and then it says in verse 5, In the same way then, there also has come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. It's true. Most of the nation has not received the blessing. Verse 7, he says, Only a chosen few obtained it. The rest were hardened. But the remnant of believing Jews in the church goes to show Israel's rejection is not total. But still, what about the future? Verse 11, that we get until verses 11 through 32. He carries on. He says, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? Once again, may it never be the strongest negative. That they, in verse 11, is still obviously referring to the hardened nation. He's asking, like, is, is the nation done for good? Should we only ever expect a small remnant of Israel to be saved? And that's it. He says, may it never be. They've stumbled but not fallen, meaning they're not done for good. At the end of this chapter, he's going to argue for Israel's future restoration. But you have to appreciate in between, he's, he's giving a special insight into God's salvation plans. 
which is what we're after, right? One of Paul's primary purposes in this section is to warn the Gentile Christians in Rome not to be proud or arrogant toward the Jews. He's told them that salvation comes, that their salvation comes without God revoking or replacing Israel's place or status as his special people. And so Gentiles are warned here, do not boast as if they had replaced Israel. In fact, if Gentiles despise Israel, they'd be despising their own salvation heritage. For their spiritual father, Abraham, is also the father of the Jews. To illustrate this point, Paul develops this metaphor of an olive tree. And the root represents the Abrahamic covenant. It's the fountainhead of all of God's covenant promises. The natural branches represent Israel. The wild branches represent the Gentiles. It's all pretty obvious, but let's read it for ourselves. Verse 17. He says, but if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became a partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember it's not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You can tell now he's directly addressing the Gentile Christians in his audience. He switched. He's talking clearly now to the Gentiles. And what is his message? It's first, like, don't be arrogant toward the natural branches, i.e. Israel. This is sadly an error a lot of supersessionists fall into, essentially heaping scorn upon Israel because they rejected the Messiah. But look, to do so is to dishonor our mutual father in the faith, Abraham. And all of God's promises through him. He continues verse 19. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right, they were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. He makes clear like, yes, Israel has been broken off for unbelief. True. Why? Not so as, and he also adds, Gentiles have been grafted in. Why is that? It's not to replace the natural branches. You didn't take anyone's spot. Gentiles don't replace Israel's place in the people of God. He says, you stand on your own. You stand by faith. And so the message again, don't be conceited. Paul continues to warn the Gentiles to not be arrogant toward fellow Jews. Again, the circumstances of Rome, that, that was a big deal. It's only by God's kindness that all you Gentiles were grafted into these covenant blessings to begin with. Verse 23, 24, you better appreciate that kindness. He says, if they don't continue by faith, they can be cut off too. Now, as for Israel, verse 23, he says, and they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. So look, he says, hey, as a theoretical possibility, God could graft Israel back in, right? All those hardened, unbelieving branches, Israel, they they can be readmitted. God's able to do it. But is this just a hypothetical? We still, all this time, we still wonder, like, will Israel be restored? Finally, we get the resolution to this tension of Israel's status as this chosen people of God with their present unbelief. And Paul does not resolve this tension by simply saying like, well, no, Gentiles have taken over Israel and 
They fulfill all the promises. No, instead, Israel's national restoration is promised by way of a divine mystery. Verse 25. He says, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. That a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Verse 26, and so all Israel will be saved. So here it is. This is the mystery of God's grand redemptive plans revealed. And what is it? It says a partial hardening has happened to national Israel. It's taking place and it will continue, but not forever. Only until the fullness of Gentiles has come in. And then he says, all Israel will be saved. As we learned last week, this is called the time of the Gentiles. And only when their full number is reached by God's hidden decree of election will Israel experience a national restoration. But he's telling us that the day will come. Now, some people still don't like this, and they try and squeeze Gentiles into this phrase, all Israel will be saved. But it's pretty dishonest with the text. You've already seen how Paul has used this term Israel exclusively to refer to the nation of Israel all throughout these chapters. Is this all of a sudden the one exception where he says all Israel will be saved? He means Gentiles will be saved. The church will be saved. That's not even a mystery. He's revealing a mystery here, and it doesn't fit the context at all. You have to read the church into these verses. But consider how decisive the context is. Paul's making it clear that the same people who refused to believe and were rejected, those are the people who will return and be grafted back in. He's talking about the branches that were cut off. They are the ones who will be saved, all Israel. Like in verse 25, everybody agrees when he speaks of Israel, it's talking to the hardened nation. Partial hardening has happened to Israel. We all understand what Israel means right there, the nation of Israel. How can you make Israel in verse 26 mean anything other than the nation of Israel? Now, they're still trying to wiggle out of this talk of Israel's future restoration by arguing that Israel in verse 26 is just talking about the remnant of believing Jews who will be saved down through the ages. But that too makes just no sense. That fact is no mystery. And Paul would just be stating the obvious. Like, of course, the elect remnant will be saved. He's already been saying that like a bunch. The remnant will be saved. And if Paul is only referring to the remnant in verse 26, like, they don't need restoration. The remnant was never cut off the tree to begin with. They don't need to be grafted back in. Here's the bottom line. Israel in verse 26, when he says all Israel will be saved. You can't make it to mean anything other than what Israel means. Verse 25, which is the hardened nation. And this is his point. So far, everything Paul has said about the salvation of the Jews has related to the remnant, to just some Jews. But what about the nation as a whole? Because God made promises to this nation. Well, we learn that in the future, according to God's redemptive plan, there will be a time when more than just the remnant is saved. This nation will be restored in belief. And look, the timing of this national restoration is explicit. It says the hardening will, will take place until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. What do you make of that? It's also connected in verses 26 and 27 to the return of Christ, at which point Israel will finally enter their new covenant. 
Look at verse 26. Yeah, he says, and so all Israel will be saved just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion and he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Quoting Old Testament, New Covenant passage. You have to recall the New Covenant, it was originally given to Israel. You realize that, right? You read it in the Old Testament, he's made it with Israel. Itself is an outgrowth of the root, the Abrahamic covenant. Now, we were just grafted into these promises. That's God's grace. Thank him for that. But you should know that God will make good on his original new covenant promises with the original recipients, Israel. Don't let this fact escape your notice. Back in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, God gives the clearest new covenant promise. He makes it with the house of Israel, the house of Judah. And he says the day will come when God will cleanse all their sins. He will put his law on their heart. And he will truly make them his people where they believe in him, right? And these are his promises to the nation. How certain are these promises? How, how certain is the fact that God will bring this about? Listen to the very next verses. I'll just read it for you. But this is Jeremiah 31, 35 through 37. Immediately after those new covenant promises with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Listen to this stunning statement. Jeremiah 31, 35, right after. It says, thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the seas that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. Verse 36, if this fixed order departs from me, the sun, the moon, the stars, the waves, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. Verse 37, thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then also will I cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Another way of him saying like, this will never happen. He will never cast them off forever for all they have done. They will always be a nation before him, chosen. How do you read that passage and still argue like, no, I think Israel has been cast off for all that they have done. Israel no longer is God's special nation. Do you see how that completely undermines God's word, his character, and his promises even to us? Now, to finish things off in Romans 11, Paul supports this notion of Israel's regathering and conversion by once again appealing to God's election, God's choice. Verse 28 says, From the standpoint of the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Again, I don't see how you read these verses and still come away thinking like, actually, they have been revoked and given to the church. Now, Paul says regarding the nation, which in the moment, they're God's enemy. In the moment, he's writing this, they're God's enemy. But he still says, look, the gifts and the calling of God, they're irrevocable. You should actually thank God for that, that the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Because whereas they were elected nationally, you're elected individually And you better be thankful that God does not change his mind. At the end here, we really see the culmination of our study for the past three weeks. This this little rabbit trail going through Matthew and Acts. 
We saw the same three stages of redemptive history play out now that Christ has come. And it starts with Jewish priority, that the Messiah and the offer of the gospel went to this people first, Israel. But then came step two, Jewish rejection. They didn't want it. They did not believe. They rejected, killed the Messiah, did the same to his apostles. They didn't believe. But in God's plan that actually led to step three, Gentile acceptance, that the gospel went out to all the nations that they all might come in, the Gentiles might believe. We get all this, we've seen this, but we've always been left wondering like, well, is that the last step? Doesn't Israel's rejection call into question God's faithfulness because he made some promises to this nation? But now we have learned there is indeed a step four, Israel's restoration. Still future, that national Israel will repent, believe, and receive their Messiah. With the little time we have left, I want to show you how perfectly these truths correlate with a few other key New Testament passages. Now here in verse 25, we learn that the timing of this national restoration is dependent on the fullness of the Gentiles coming in. And you remember how that perfectly correlates with what Jesus said in Luke 21, 24. <clears throat> Jesus himself predicted Israel's rejection and their desolation. Then he said this, Luke 21, 24. He says, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. That word fulfilled is the same root word Paul uses when he says that the full, uh, Israel has been hardened until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Like Jesus said in Matthew 23, 38, he predicted Israel's house is being left desolate to them. This is now the time of the Gentiles. And Israel will be cut off from the Messiah's blessing, but not forever, only until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled until they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I also want to quickly reference this, this two passages in Acts we skipped over from last week. You can listen or you can turn Acts chapter 1. First is Acts 1, 6 and 7. Right at the beginning, Christ is resurrected. He's about to ascend. Final instructions, Acts 1, 6. With his apostles, it says, when they had come together, They were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? In verse 7, Jesus said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the epochs in which the Father has fixed by his own authority. You really have to appreciate the setting of this text. Luke tells us in verses 3 and before that the resurrected Jesus has just spent the better part of 40 days specifically instructing his apostles on the subject of the kingdom of God. So they just had roughly 40 days of kingdom instruction from the risen Savior. At this point, their minds were already open to understand the truth. And after all that, they come to the end. He's about to ascend. What's their last question? Like, is it, is it now you're restoring the kingdom of Israel? Like, is it at this point you're going to do that? It's undeniable they had... Israel, uh, the nation of Israel in mind, the nation that needed to be restored, that was being cut off. I mean, at the very least, the disciples understood from Jesus that the coming of the kingdom and Israel's restoration would coincide. If the disciples had this expectation wrong, like, do we say Jesus is a bad teacher? Or if the disciples really were, were wrong, why didn't Jesus correct them like he does all the time? 
This just this is the perfect opportunity to let them know as they're about to start this church, like, guys, come on, you, you got it all wrong. I've been telling you, the kingdom is entirely spiritual. Israel is being replaced by the church. We've covered this. But no, instead of correcting their expectation of Israel's restoration in the kingdom, Jesus implicitly affirms it, saying, it's not for you to know the time. That's all he says. Like, it's not for you to know the times and the epochs by which God is fixed by his authority. That's a pretty big deal. And you see those two words, times and epochs. Peter, in his second sermon to the Jews, uses the exact same words to refer to his own prediction of Israel's restoration. Is Acts 3, 19 through 21, which we also had to skip, or rather save. Acts 3, 19. Peter to the Jews, he says in his second sermon, Therefore, repent and return, so that your sins may be wiped away. Then he says, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive, until the period of restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. And in this passage, Peter, he's preaching to Israel, to the men of Israel. This is no ordinary call of salvation. We get the command, repent and return. Your sins may be wiped away. Okay, great. But do you see how he attaches a unique purpose clause in preaching to Israel? He says, repent and return in order that times of refreshing may come. And then a second purpose clause, and so that God may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you. What does that mean? I thought God already sent Jesus appointed for Israel, and they rejected him. Yes, he did. But Peter clearly envisions a second coming of this Messiah. God will again send Jesus appointed for Israel. When's this going to happen? Verse 21 says, heaven must receive him until the period of restoration of all things. What is this period of restoration? This term speaks of a restitution of things to their former condition. Going back to something's former condition. It can mean nothing less than the fullness of the kingdom. We know that in his first coming, Jesus truly inaugurated a kingdom of grace. Yes, spiritually present on earth. But in his second coming, he's going to inaugurate a kingdom of glory. Peter makes explicit here this this times of refreshing, this period of restoration. They're not present. They're future. They're attached to the coming of Christ. But see why this is such a big deal. Peter correlates here the second coming of Christ with the repentance of Israel. You You would agree that Israel played a pivotal role in the first coming of the Messiah, right? Well, guess what? They play a pivotal role in the second coming of the Messiah. You put this together with Romans. Here's the picture. In God's plan, Israel would reject the Messiah at his first coming. That was always the plan. They would be hardened in unbelief, cut off from God's blessing. Only a small remnant would be saved, and the gospel would be diverted to the nations. And this is the time of the Gentiles. But when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, per God's plan. Israel will be restored. They will repent and return, and the restoration will coincide with the second coming of Christ. Now, Peter said this time of restoration was spoken of beforehand by the prophets, and he meant it. Zechariah 12.10, after the time of Jacob's trouble, says, Israel will look on him whom they have pierced and mourn for him. They will repent 
Zechariah 14.5 says, Yahweh himself will come down with his holy angels. Zechariah 14.9 says, Then Yahweh will be king over all the earth. And that day Yahweh will be the only one, his name the only one. And, and undoubtedly talking of Christ, Yahweh incarnate. You want more, just read Isaiah 54, 60, 61, Jeremiah 30, 31, 33, Ezekiel 20, 36, 37, 39, Isaiah 14, Joel 3, Amos 9, Micah 4, Micah 7, Zephaniah 3, Zechariah 8, Zechariah 12 through 14. If you're taking notes, we record these. So you can just hit pause. You will find Israel's future and restoration plainly promised everywhere. It's actually amazing how much the Old Testament Matthew, Acts, Romans, even Revelation, give us such a clear, consistent, simple picture of God's plan. No interpretive gymnastics are required. When the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense. All of these promises of Israel's future restoration, in addition, they, they pose no threat to the church. You have to realize they're actually part of God's plans for the church. The church is the one and only people of God. National Israel will enter that new covenant people as a national entity in the future. Nat said, especially after the Jewish Bar Kokhba revolt in AD 135, you all know about that, right? But after that revolt, the increasingly Roman church really started viewing Jews as a threat and a liability. There's a lot of church history and politics of the second century that go into the rise of this replacement theology. Save that for some other time. For now, though, we have to conclude this is another long and involved study concerning Israel and the church, but I think it's beneficial to dive deep into God's word. The Bible is deep, but it is clear. In all, just as Paul wanted this Roman church to grow deeper in their understanding of the plan of God for the people of God, that they might be just further established in their faith, this study should have the same impact on us. You might think all these studies have been about Israel. No, they've actually all been about God. We've been gaining the paramount conviction that God is true to his word. The word of God cannot fail. It has not failed. It will not fail. We've seen that concerning Israel. And it is also true concerning us. Look, if scripture just very clearly and plainly taught, that all of God's promises to Israel were always meant to be spiritually transferred to the church. I'd have no problem with it. I'd believe it. It's just not the case. God's promises are clear, plain, straightforward, consistent. And so will their fulfillment be. You know what this means, though? It means that we today can take passages like Romans 8 at face value, knowing full well that all the things God has said and promised concerning us, he will bring them to pass. Places like Romans 8, 18, where Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed. That includes in verse 23, the redemption of our bodies. We have a physical, glorious, literal resurrection awaiting us. You can count on that. What about Romans 8, 28? That we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purposes. That's a promise. And that's true. That's literally true. Verse 31, if God is for us, who's against us? Verse 33, we're God's elect. God justified us. Who can undo that? We can be assured 
God won't change his mind about us, his calling and choosing of us by grace. In Christ, by faith, we are secured. Romans 8, 38, he says that, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. On the surface, it sounds like that's saying nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And that is what it's saying. It just says what it means. It means what it says. Listen, just, just trust this God. That's not a cheap application. Thoroughly trust this God. Cling to his promises. Take his promises to the bank. Order your whole life around his promises. Because you know his word cannot fail. Your hope is not in vain. I also want to add this study should humble all of us. Us Gentiles especially need the reminder, like don't boast. Don't be conceited. Everyone's place in the church, Jew or Gentile, is only by God's mercy. Romans 9, 14, he says, salvation does not depend on the man who wills, but on God who has mercy. Why are we here? Why, Why did I believe? I can't boast. It's only by God's mercy. That should humble us. It also should make us deeply gracious toward the lost. We're not better than them. We're not in here because we're better, smarter, wiser, or anything. We just, for reasons unknown, received God's favor and mercy. We've been grafted in. So instead of scorning the lost, Jew or Gentile, we should pray earnestly for their salvation, that God would show them the same mercy. And we should share this message we have that is the power of God for salvation, for everyone. It's for all sinners, and that's everyone. All sinners find hope in Christ. And although when you peer too long into the plans of God, it, it can make your head spin a little bit, but it shows us like this, this is divine. No finite man could plan this, could bring this all about. In redemptive history, God has done a marvelous thing, and he's still working that plan out. But the more you think about God's eternal plan, the more you're just blown away by his wisdom, his knowledge, his power. And the only response that remains is worship. And that explains how Paul ends Romans 11. Paul himself, after all this, was just left in awe at the brilliance of God's plan. And all he could do at the end was just proclaim the depths of God's wisdom in worship and praise. Let us do the same. Romans 11:33. He says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. That's our prayer. Let's make it our prayer now. Now, Father in heaven, we do praise and magnify your name this morning for all that we've received and seen in your word, which even still is just a sliver of your plans and your glory, your wisdom, your majesty. But I pray we sit back and just worship that we are left in awe of you and all that you've done. You do this for your glory. We are those vessels of mercy. We can't explain why, but we can give you the thanks and the, the, the praise. We can deeply trust you knowing your promises both to Israel 
this nation, not for anything in themselves. You just set your love on. You chose them to be a, a first among equals, a nation among nations. You're true to them. You'll be true to us as well, to all the redeemed. From all the nations, we can count on your word, your promises. They are sure. Build us up in this assurance, and may we live boldly, confidently in it. That's how you want us to live. You want us to take you at your word when we do so deeply this morning, learning your word is true. Your word cannot fail. We trust in you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.